The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today we are speaking with Adrian Durant, the George Heakin Head Coach of Men's Track and Field and Cross Country at Cornell University. We talk with Adrian about his journey from college athlete to Olympic competitor to Cornell coach. He will share how goal setting and team culture has shaped his success both on the field and in the workplace. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Aaron Semper-Chase. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. So Adrian, we're so happy to have you here. If you could just introduce yourself and if you'd like to say what pronouns you use and tell us more about your role at Cornell and how long you've been here. Well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Coach Adrian Durant, pronouns he, him. I am the head coach of men's track and field. And I've been at Cornell for 10, this is my 11th year. Wow. Nice. So I've been here for a little while now. And have you been in that position the whole time? No, I came in as an assistant coach, and then I at one point was promoted to head coach. Nice. Because of, like, a great winning record? Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a, a pretty good um, first two years here as mm-hmm. an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I coached the men's and women's sprints and um, and hurdles as well. And, and we were able to uh, break a few records and, and yeah. create yeah. a few champions. And uh, I guess I just was here at a perfect time where yeah. my predecessor was about to retire uh-huh. and Mm-hmm. And for everyone else, it must have just seemed like a good fit. Like, hey, this yeah. uh, this young assistant coach can yeah. <laughs> can take the wheel. But uh, I can tell you, at the time, it was a pretty big, <laughs> pretty big deal. Yeah. Sure. And I'm sure it was way more than just perfect timing. I'm sure it had something <laughs> to do with the skill set that you're bringing right. and and the amazing team that you were helping to build. Sure. Well, I I, I guess, but I can <laughs> tell you. Uh, you know, becoming a head coach is just a lot more than um, than you you would expect. Yeah. Um, you know, you go from where you're primarily responsible for your own event group and just coaching your kids mm-hmm. to uh, right. being responsible for the the culture and the mission of the entire program. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So our men's team is wow. 75 men right now. So oh, wow. Yeah, it's. <laughs> and do you coach the men and the women's teams? I coach all of the women's sprints and mm-hmm. hurdles, and okay. so we very much function like one program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're essentially one staff, and I'm the uh, the longest tenured, <laughs> yeah. terrible, longer than everyone else. But wow. um, yeah, all of the coaches coach um, on both teams. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the eleventh year here. That's amazing. Thank you. I know I can't believe it. <laughs> Yeah. Most people, <laughs> when you meet me, they don't think I'm the head coach because I'm still relatively young for the position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and is that is that actually true, like nationally? Like, are you one of the younger head coaches compared to other Ivy Leagues? Yes, I would say over the past couple of years, there've been a few newer young coaches, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, the head coaches are, uh, you know, they're mainly sixty plus. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So Adrian, it's it's kind of great to listen to you and, and hear about a little bit about the transitions that you've had as you migrated from an assistant coach to a, a head coach here. And so can you talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, that comes with a lot of changes, right? And so what is your leadership philosophy as you've made this change? <laughs> that That's a great question. It's interesting because now that I'm in this position, you know, I don't really think about what my philosophy is is as Mm -hmm. a leader. I just, I'm just in the position, in the role. And I know now that I've been a head coach for eight, nine years now, I understand the responsibilities, you know, all of my actions, um, how the staff will interpret them, how the kids on the team would interpret them. So I'm just very careful about all these little things that I do. And that's stuff that I had to learn Mm -hmm. um, when I became a head coach. I had only been an assistant coach here for maybe two years and a year at Florida A&M. And so, you know, like I said, becoming the the main figurehead for the program, um, you start learning about all the logistical things, all the interpersonal things mm-hmm. that you have to deal with. Uh, it's just a lot more than most people expect. And, and it's, uh, it's kind of like learning on the job as well. You kind of get hit with things and then you have to learn how to adjust and pivot and how to deal with the situation. So uh, now that I've been doing it for a while, it's become a lot easier and I've been able to focus on Less on, I would say, putting out fires when you first get started. There are things popping up. You're learning how to deal with them. I say now it's more so about building the exact culture that we want and being able to come together and pursue our goals. So for me, as the head coach, 
I want the staff and the kids to know how serious I am about what I'm doing, um, that I take it seriously, that I want them to be better, that I want the team to be better. Um, if they don't see that in me, then it's going to be hard for me to expect that out of them. So in your role, you correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of have two roles. You, you, you're literally leading the athletes in the, what they're doing, running, competing, but you're also leading in a workplace because, mm-hmm. right, you're supervising the other coaches and people like that. So I'm wondering, you know, does your approach differ at all <laughs> yeah. between leading, you know, on the field, so to speak, versus leading in the, in the um, conference room? I don't, I don't think so. You know, I feel that I have maybe an untraditional leadership style when it comes to in the workplace because I've seen how my predecessors and how other head coaches handle um, the position. You know, I don't want to feel like I have to micromanage and, and be in your ear and tell you what you have to do. I feel like we establish what our, our goal is, how to accomplish that goal, and what your role is in that. And then I trust that you'll you'll do your thing. So in, in that sense, I don't need to see you in the office at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. every day because I understand that coaching, especially being a track coach, which is all year long, you know, you're going to be putting in late evenings. You're going to be working across the the weekends. Kids are going to be texting you. You're managing a whole group. And so what I want to do is make it easier for you, you know, allow flexibility. Um, I've always been kind of an advocate of that. And so it really is up to the individual. When I was in school, I was a pretty good student. And I always used to ask the question, if I can get an A in this class and and I don't really need to be in the classroom, then why do I have to spend my time doing this? Right. <laughs> and, and so, and so, and I took that through college. I was, I was pretty good in college, and I used to feel the same way. Like, look, I can go pass the test. I can do this, and and so I feel like I bring a little bit of that in my leadership style, where it's like, look, you know, manage your schedule. You know, you know what time you have practice. You know what our obligations are, but. I'm not going to expect you, like I said, 9 a.m. in the office, just sitting there and not doing anything productive. Right. You know, I'd rather you live your life, have a morning with your family, whatever the case may be, um, having something outside of this profession. Because to me as well, this can't just be everything that you do. And I feel like that's with work in general. Yeah, I think yeah. you should have things outside of the job that fulfill you so that sometimes things at work are going to be bad. And when they are bad, I don't think that that should just be the trigger for everything else to fall apart. I think right. you should have something outside of the job. So I encourage uh, my assistants to have their hobbies and to do different things, mm-hmm. you know, um, to break away from track now and then. But when it comes down to business, we want to win a championship. Right. And, we're, and, we're all, <laughs> and we're all in and we're all on board. Right. Right. And everyone's doing their part. So yeah. That's kind of how I approach it. <laughs> I like how you said, I'm kind of catchphrasing it, but establish our goal and know your role Yeah. in that. You know, I think you should hashtag that. Uh, really? Uh, <laughs> I like that. Take that idea. Yeah, there you go. I also like that, too, that, you know, you, you establish the team goals, right? Whether that's for, you know, for your direct reports or various other teams. But then you give them the freedom to kind of approach that however they need to, because we all function differently. We don't all approach life and projects and everything else the same exact way. So I, to Aaron's point, I, I actually put a star next to that as well on my little piece of paper because I, I, I really like that. But my question to you is, do you change that approach with the athletes? I, I, don't, I don't think I do. <laughs> I mean, look, for me, practice is fun. I have fun at practice. Practice is the most fun time of the day. So if you go to my social media and you see some of the content that we put out, we're having fun. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because it's hard enough. It's just yeah. like it's just like Cornell. Like the school is hard enough. Right. So let's not make it harder. Right. If you're doing track and, and you love it and, and you want to be good, I think that's the most important piece. We've established a team culture. Um, when we have recruits visiting and parents visiting, one of the things that they say they love the most is our team culture. It's a big team. You know, our men and women's team together, about 150 kids, very diverse team, people from all across the globe, um, different socioeconomic categories. Everyone's everywhere. Um, You know, folks from the Caribbean, folks from Europe, Canada, California, Texas, all over the U.S. And we're able to come together and create an environment where, from my perspective, it's what Cornell says that it wants, Mm -hmm. a place where anybody can study anything. So we have this big, diverse team that's very welcoming. And the feedback that we get from our families is like, wow, this group is just, they're so great. They're welcoming, an excellent team culture. And so recruits are like, wow, we want to be a part of that. Um, And it's not just about the track. It's about, you know, just that energy. Um, Everyone's supporting each other. And, And part of it is that we have the same goal. We've decided, okay, 
this is where we want to be as a program. And so everyone who joins this program is going to be a part of that. And if, you're, if we have this common goal, it's easy to unite and work together and support each other, which is what they, they do. So um, I think that's an important piece of it. We've established that culture. And so now for me, now that everyone's on board, I don't have to be at practice. I'm not a yeller. If you come to the track, <laughs> you'll never see me yelling at practice. Uh -huh. I, I, if I have to do that, you shouldn't even be on a team. Right. Because like, mm -hmm. it's your goal. If you want to run a certain time, that's your goal. And I'm here to help you accomplish that goal. And then our goal as a team is to win, which means you have to do your part. Right. But if I have to yell at you to get you to do the training that's required for you to accomplish your goal, then you're not serious about that goal. And I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah. So that's we've a very good point. So we've created an environment where these kids, these student athletes, they have their goals. And I'm just here to help you achieve that goal. I'm not here to create the goal for you. But the second you're not doing the things that are required to accomplish that goal, I'm going to hold you accountable. Uh, you're going to hear about it. And your teammates are as well because they want to win. Right. And so I think when you've established that, and that's not something you establish in a year or two years, I think once you've established that, it makes the day-to-day -day a lot smoother. Yeah, that's really neat. I really like that philosophy. I want to go back to something you said about how diverse the team is. You know, you said it's from all over the country, all over the globe, that sort of thing. And to be honest, sometimes I have an image in my head that when we're talking about certain sports, especially <laughs> Ivy League sports, right, I wonder, right, about the level of access and mm -hmm. if it tends to be more of an elite, you know, establishment to be part of Ivy League sports. So what do you think it is about track and field that has allowed it to be a little bit more uh, diverse than that? Well, you know, I, I grew up in the Virgin Islands, um, and track was my sport. I have friends who grew up in Jamaica, uh -huh. and track was their sport. And living in, in the Caribbean, you know, if you don't have any money, <laughs> track is a sport that you can do. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, as long as you, you could be barefoot, it could be on grass. <laughs> as long as you're, you can get from A to B, yeah. it's a sport that you can do. And so um, in Jamaica, I have a lot of friends who are Jamaican and some who are Olympic medalists. And it was their opportunity to, they won a track meet, they were able to get a pair of shoes. You know, they did well. They were able to go to this specific primary school. They were able to go to this, yeah. this high school. And then they were able to get scholarships. So it just opened up opportunity and created a path for them. And it did the same for me. Uh, you know, it's how I left the Virgin Islands. It's how I ended up in, in New Jersey. And it's how I ended up here. Um, and so you don't have to be able to spend thousands of dollars on equipment. Um, you don't need any, you know, fancy training. You just have to be able to run. run. And so that's a lot more accessible to yes. uh, most people than sports like, and I don't want to talk negatively about any sports, but I'm from the Virgin Islands. We're very good at sailing, but it's only a certain group of individuals who can participate in that sport because right. you have to be able right. to afford a boat. Right, right. <laughs> so... So track is so because of that, we're able to recruit everybody. And, mm -hmm. and so, yes, we do have individuals on the team who, you know, they're in a situation where they can pay the full tuition. And then we have individuals on the team who are their first generation college. Yeah. And I, but I think the important thing is that if you saw our team interact, they're all together. They're yes. all friends. They all love each other. They support each other. And after they graduate, they continue to do so. So that's that's the reflection of the culture that we've established. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so you just talked a little bit there about your own experience. Tell us more oh, yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more. Who was Adrian, young Adrian, uh, running around the Caribbean? Tell us I, more. I was running around. <laughs> no, that was me. I, uh, I grew up in the Virgin Islands on St. Croix. Um, and I always share this piece because I, I think it's important. I was adopted. Uh, my mother was adopted, actually. She passed at a young age. And so I was adopted by the family that had adopted my mother. Oh. And um, I, I never knew who my father was. I had never met my father, but I was raised by my adoptive mother and my grandmother on St. Croix. My grandmother, who was a very, very strict, very yeah. strict <laughs> school teacher, very strict. And I was one of those kids who just had an abundance of energy, uh -huh. extremely energetic, extremely talkative. And somewhere around second grade, it was like, okay, this kid is gonna just, we have, <laughs> we have to do something. Okay. With all this energy. Yes, like I was running, I would run in circles, run around the house, you know, I was talkative. Yeah. Um, and so they, they put me in every sport they possibly mm -hmm. could. Um, I wasn't good at basketball. Um, I could steal a ball, but I just, I wasn't good at making shots. Mm -hmm. um, flag football, I could, you know, I could run the ball and score, but I, I just wasn't good at, at running plays. Um, 
and I did a little bit of uh, martial arts, and then they put me in track. And and track was the one, you know, I uh, track was the sport that I first was able to travel, and that's why I first had my love for travel because I had a, a coach who took us to uh, the British Virgin Islands, and I was able to go there and experience their culture and and, and see their how their money was different from ours and, and hear how their dialect was different. And um, and that just intrigued me, and so I kind of developed that love for travel instantly. And, and track was that sport that started that, and I was pretty good at it. I had a ton of energy, and I could run. Yeah. Um, soccer became my second sport, oh. um, but track was the one that I ended up sticking with. And and somewhere early on, after winning my first ribbon, I just declared that I wanted to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because even now you can see old newspaper articles of me just talking about this. Like, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so my mother, who uh, wanted to do everything she could to make that happen, uh, you know, she just made sure I was at practice every time. And once I was uh, leaving elementary school, shipped me off to go live with family in New Jersey because there would be more opportunity there. Yeah, okay. um, so so that goal of going to the Olympics led me to New Jersey. Which I have to say, I loved it how you played that. I declared I was going to go to <laughs> yeah. the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I do believe that you have to do that. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of times when I talk to people about goals and goal setting, uh, they either don't have a goal or they're embarrassed by their goal. Yeah. And and that's that's the first step to to not achieving your goal. Uh, it doesn't matter if people laugh at your goal or anything like that. You have to you have to believe in it, and you have to be able to say it without worrying about who cares. Like, who cares what anyone thinks? Don't yeah. worry about that. It like, doesn't matter how lofty it is, right? It doesn't. Yeah. I yeah. want to go to the Olympics. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> because here's here's why here's why you should do it that way, and that's why you need to do it that way. Your declaration will guide your decisions. So, because I decided that I wanted to go to the Olympics, all of my choices will lead me there. My mother, she she shipped me off to New Jersey right. to a whole different place. And, and that tra- transition was difficult for me. But that was part of the goal and the path to becoming an Olympian. That would not have happened had I not had that goal. There would, there would be no reason to send me off. So all of these things happen once you kind of focus on where you're trying to end up. So I ended up at in New Jersey, um, which led me to the university, walking on at the University of South Carolina. It's a it's a pretty long story. <laughs> no, yeah. and, and, you know, credit to your mom, because yes. I would imagine a lot of moms, when their kids said, I'm going to be an Olympian, would be like, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> but get back to your homework. You yeah, know? <laughs> well, I, I think she probably felt like, whatever you want to do, let's keep him out the house, keep him in this sport, because he's not going to drive me crazy. That, right. That's what my mom yeah. is. She's like, yes, okay, just stay at practice every day. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, practice every day and soccer practice on the weekends. I would come home and just pass out, and that was good for everyone. But there's got to be a point where even your mom believed in this goal for you. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. With you to be able to Thank make you. that decision to send her child, yeah. right, yeah. somewhere where the opportunities are going to be better. So there there was that turning point for her from going from, to Aaron's point, oh, yeah, that's a cute goal, <laughs> to, oh, my gosh, I think we can make this happen, yeah. right, and, yeah. and yeah. let me help you get there. Oh, well, I won a lot of ribbons. Okay. <laughs> I won a, I won a, a lot of ribbons, a lot of medals. She's always complaining about, you know, this stuff is all over the house. You know, I put your stuff in a bin, blah, 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 blah. So I yeah. won a lot of those things. And, and so, you know, I have a podcast where I interview track and field stars, Olympians, Olympic medalists, so that they can tell their story. Mm-hmm. And it's long form. It goes for maybe an hour and a half. And I've interviewed Olympian LaShawn Merritt, um, Mike Rogers, Aileen Bailey from Jamaica, um, just just some superstars, all all medalists. And I did that because I I noticed a trend when I speak with people. Uh, You know, you see when people are successful at things where they're at. But when I'm talking to other people, it seems like there was a a lack of understanding of what it took to really be successful. Um, And also some discouragement. If you don't think something is possible, you won't even try. And so I, I want to start the podcast so these individuals can tell their stories so you can see exactly what it takes to win an Olympic gold medal. And it's hard. Every single one of them, you, I started hearing common themes. You know, um, they set the goal, you know, and they were working relentlessly towards this goal. But one of the biggest things, the most important things that goes understated, which is why I wanted to mention it when I mentioned my mother, is that every single one of them, Every single Olympic gold medalist, every champion has someone who supports them 100% and is in their corner backing them, believing in them, even when they're ready to give up. 
That's the person who's saying, no, you're going to get up and you're going to go do this. There's always somebody. For me, that was my mother coming up. Um, for a lot of these individuals, it's it's a parent. It's somebody who's just in their corner. Um, and so I started thinking that must be necessary. Everybody must need somebody. And so I think it's important to highlight that because you can be that somebody for somebody and don't even know it. You could be that support system for somebody, you know, that person who believes in them, encourages them, even when they're ready to quit, because there are no champions without those individuals. Uh, so that was what my mother did. She made sure that I had everything I needed. She parked at track practice and slept in the car until I was done and had no social life and did anything else and made sure I was there every day and never missed a practice. And so that was the start. So I, I know, Adrian, we cannot continue this story because our audience would just send us multiple messages <laughs> if we don't address, did you make it to the Olympics or not? <laughs> yes. So what ended up happening is went to Jersey, um, you know, ran in high school. I'm actually in my high school's Hall of Fame now, which I'm Yay. excited about. Teaneck High School in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, from there, I walked on to the University of South Carolina. So it wasn't just a smooth ride. I, I wanted to go to one of the best track teams in the country, which University of South Carolina was, and they had individuals who were just far faster than I was. And so I had not run fast enough to earn a scholarship. Um, and I wasn't going to go to college. I, uh, you know, I kind of had just... I thought I would just train and try to run track. And my grandfather, who was an air, aircraft mechanic for United, a tough guy. I mean, this is a self-taught. This is someone who came up, taught himself to be an engineer and became an aircraft mechanic for United. Wow, like, wow. You know, he was, a par he was in the um, triple nickel paratrooper. Um, you know, that was the first all-black paratrooper unit. So my grandfather was, he was, you know, he's a serious guy. Yeah. And I said, no, you're going to school. Yeah. <laughs> and so, That's the end of that discussion. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it wasn't even a question. Yeah. So uh, my mom. He declared it. Yeah, he was like, no. <laughs> so I took out some loans. You know, they had a little bit of money saved up. It was enough for one year. So the goal was, okay, you're going to go here and earn a scholarship. Yeah. Which isn't, I mean, it's risky, but. I, I, you know, we went for it. Um, so I walked on to the University of South Carolina. And like I said, at the time, they were the national champions in the 4x4. The women's team was the national championship team. And the men's team was top five in the country. And I, I was, you know, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't that good. And I just got there and trained and worked. And by the end of my first year, I uh, was a SEC champion on the relay team. I was an All-American and I had earned a full scholarship. And I also had that summer been able to represent the Virgin Islands, race Usain Bolt a couple times, and travel competing for the Virgin Islands. So I had, I had gotten exponentially faster, um, fast enough to become one of the top sprinters on the team. And uh, uh, my sophomore year at South Carolina, I uh, competed for the U.S. Virgin Islands at the Athens Olympics. So it was, wow. like, it was like mission accomplished. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the home of the Olympics. Yeah. So quite the experience. And I got to go a second time in 2016, but this time as a coach. So in a lot of ways, it was almost even more rewarding going as a coach. So and it just begs to ask, like, the next question, right, is what happens when you accomplish your goal, right? Like, do you set another one? So you, <laughs> you, you should. And so this is what happened to me. And there, and this, that's why it's like it's not like you just win and it's done, right? right? Yeah, this right. is like, it's yeah. life. And you're like, I'm here now. What do I do, right? Yeah. And it's very important to continue to set goals. Um, I did not set another goal after I went to the Olympics the first time. I just took it for granted and thought I would just continue making it to Olympics and things of that nature. And because of that, I had not, I did not return to the Olympics for a number of years. I hadn't, I hadn't returned for 12 years, um, and that was as a coach. So I just thought, oh, you know, I would make it again in 2008, but I didn't. I thought, oh, I'll make it again in 2012, but I didn't. And so, um, you know, I really should have set some longer-term goals, um, because you can get to that point where, okay, I won, I'm here, now what? Now and what? now you're not motivated to continue working as hard. You're not motivated to continue sacrificing because that's what it takes to stay at the top or right, stay yeah. at your peak. Um, and so at that point, I should have set more goals, which was a mistake, and it, it led to some tough times, I could tell you that. Very interesting. So, I mean, what has it meant for you, I guess, personally and professionally to have been involved with track and field? I mean, there's just the breadth of what you, what you have done, you know, athlete, Olympian, coach, um, even to the point of developing your own podcast. I mean, that tells me that this really, you know, <laughs> has been an, a, an incredibly influential part of your life, personally and professionally. What, what has it meant to you? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, 
I've never really thought about what it means to me, I guess, because I'm just living in this existence. Just who you are, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And I did try to I did try to get away from it and I was reeled back in. Yeah. At one point I tried to use my IT degree and and, and, um I was working in in tech support and I just didn't really like sitting in a little cubicle. You know, I like computers and I like doing tech work and I, I like computer engineering and all those things. I could build my own desktop. But um, I just I, I missed being outside and and in the track world, and so I I went right back into it and decided to get into the track game. And I can tell you, getting into track, the coaching part of it, um, it's it's pretty tough because there are limited spots. And so to start, I had to volunteer. I volunteered at the University of Illinois. Um, for six months, and and I had to leave there, and then eventually I had to work and save money so that I can volunteer again. Um, so I, I moved back to the Virgin Islands. I was working at a gym. I started a little company training people, and I saved up enough money to go work for free at Florida A and M University. And uh, wow. yeah, I was I was there coaching for two years, and that's how I got the assistant coach job at Cornell because. I was coaching at Family, but I was doing well. I coached champions and all Americans, even though at the time I was I was kind of homeless and bouncing around and really? on, living on food stamps. And so when I decided I wanted to go into coaching, it was just like when I said I wanted to become an Olympian. I was gonna say that was yeah, your goal. It's, it's not like it was okay. This is gonna be easier. No, it was the same type of journey right. to get me to become you know <laughs> head coach where I am now. And so. I don't know. I think it's just important to share that because success stories, well, what people consider success stories, um, people don't share the the bad stuff or the hard stuff or what it actually takes to get there. And I think everyone should know so that they can, you know, when things get hard, it's like that's the halfway point. Yeah. Like you just got to push through that. Yeah, I, I loved everything about that idea. And especially, I, I actually want to go back a little bit to um, when you mentioned that you walked into South Carolina, right? You walked in that first day, not being the fastest athlete. Not close. Um, and then <laughs> at the end of that first year, you were an SEC champion, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about kind of that journey? What did the coaches do for you that allowed you to go from not the fastest to one of the fastest within a very, I, I, you know, I know a year, but that's a very short time frame. It is. Competing at that level. And then my follow-up question to that is, then do you also employ some of those tactics in your current position? Absolutely. So for me, it was a combination of being in a better training environment. Mm-hmm. So South Carolina, it was warm all the time. Right. <laughs> Having more coaching expertise available to me. Uh, so, you know, you're dealing at Division One, you're dealing with professional coaches. In high school, you usually have a, a teacher or a, a football coach who's coaching track or someone who's, and they're trying their best. I'm not, you know, they're trying their best, but at the college level, it's your profession. You know, sure. most of us have master's degrees. Most of us have multiple certifications. And just so it's it's just a different level. So um, that matters, um, expert coaching. And I think the most important piece is when I walked on to South Carolina, I had a choice. I was a nobody. We had guys on a team who were already some of the best in the world. And we had other guys who were on scholarship, but they weren't quite the best in the world. They were better than me. And I had a choice on which group I would train with. And so every time I had a choice, I would train with the future Olympians. And they would drag me all over the place. They would kick my butt all day. Everything we ran, they would destroy me (laughs) day after day. And I would never give up. And I eventually got closer and closer and closer to the point where I could beat. I couldn't beat them ever. (laughs) But I beat everyone else. Uh That was the key. So. You know, it's it's it was a choice. I decided to, you know, steel sharp and steel. I decided to get with the folks who would push me, who were better than me, that I would have to work hard and, and break my own limits to get to their level. And I did. And so when people hear about my improvement, they're like, Phew, that's a even now when I talk to recruits now and tell them my improvements, they were like, That's a huge drop. That's what, that's yeah. What I like, yeah. Yeah, I made some huge drops, but um uh, that happens here as well. Um we have a team that wants to win kids who want to be good so they encourage each other they support each other um, and at a place like this you know the school is very rigorous so it helps to have other kids who are doing the same thing with you they're on the same schedule and they're invested in your success you know they care about how you do um, that helps and so we have an environment where on the men and women's team steel sharp and steel we always produce national caliber athletes here we have world-class track and field athletes here because of that environment that we've set up. 
Yeah, so I, I do try to use some of the knowledge that I've gained uh-huh. <laughs> over the years, you know, good and bad, right. to, yeah. to get the best results that we can. I, I really am appreciating how much you are highlighting the importance of two things, um, and maybe equal weight. The importance of, you know, the, the mentors and the coaches and even the teammates, right, who are really helping to keep you motivated and focused on that goal. But then also the significance of the choices, the individual person's choices, which includes a lot of risk. I mean, you know, both oh, of the... Tons right, of risk. Particularly, I have to say, for you to take the risk you took to be a coach, right? Like, I didn't know that, that you could only volunteer and yeah. you're not even getting paid. And there you are, living on food stamps. I mean, that was a huge choice to make to stay committed to your goal. So I'm glad that you highlighted that point. That's important. So now when we're talking about accomplishing goals, there's a lot more in your control than you may have thought. That's what I want to emphasize. There's a lot more in your control to accomplish your goals. And you should go for your goals because even if you fall short, where you end up is going to be way further than where you are. So even if I didn't make the Olympics, it doesn't matter. I still would have been a Virgin Islands record holder. That's I st- right. I still have raced Usain Bolt at the Pan American Juniors, you know. I still have a medal at the Krifta Games. So even if I didn't make the Olympics, I have those things. So, you know, I just – it's in your control. I had a choice to make. I was – no, I wasn't fearless. I was courageous. And I think that's another point of emphasis, that there is no courage without fear and that it's okay to be afraid. But if fear is impacting your decision, then that's that's not you're not going to get what you want. So was I afraid to move to Illinois to volunteer coach? Yes, I was. And I failed. The head coach there lost his job. And so I lost my job. Uh And so I left. I, I was in terrible debt. It was a terrible situation, in debt, no job, and having to move back from Illinois. And you know what I did? I moved back to the Virgin Islands. Uh, I started training, working at a gym. I started teaching all the classes at the gym. I took over everything. I started training <laughs> all the, all the, because everybody was doing it halfway, and I was 100% in. Yeah. And I saved up enough money so that I could move to Tallahassee, Florida, and volunteer again. Right, Even though yeah. I failed at right. Illinois, I volunteered again at FAMU. But this time, I didn't fail. So, you know, it's risk. I could have just done something else easier, but I wouldn't be here. Wow. And what I've read in your bio and your story is that when you got the head coach position at Cornell, you were one of the only minority head (laughs) coaches in the country and definitely in the Ivies. Yeah, that's probably still the case because there aren't a lot of uh, black head coaches. There are a lot more now than there were before. Um, in the Ivy League, there aren't many at all. I, I think we're somewhere around 10 out of a couple hundred, which right. is not good enough. And unfortunately, at Cornell, I, I think I may still be the only. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's tough. Um, I want to say it was a lot of pressure at the time, but I wasn't really focused on that. Once I became head coach, my goal was to try and win so that yeah. I could prove that I deserved this position. So I was more focused on that. Well, I think that that's a really good example of a couple of things you talked about, about this idea of what type of culture are we creating, but then also help contributing to, <laughs> you know? Um, yes. And you've done so much. And then, you know, the irony being the way that I met you had nothing to do with anything that we talked about today, <laughs> right? The way that I actually met you is because you, you were also, on top of everything else, involved with the employee assembly, um, which for people who don't know, is part of the university's shared governance structure. You know, you got your student assembly, you've got your faculty assembly, but then you got the employee assembly that folks like us are involved with. And I remember distinctly, I think it was during the pandemic, so, you know, we really only knew people virtually. But I remember that you were also ran for employee trustee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, which, you know, because you didn't have enough to do. So you thought, right. yeah, I'll do that too, right? Yeah. But what I really appreciate about your platform and hearing you speak and reading about you was that you highlighted the need for really providing appropriate support and resources to help employees feel engaged and to stay here. And you really emphasize that. And, and I would love for you to talk more about that. As I get to know you today, it makes more sense as to <laughs> yeah. why that would be a platform. But still, again, you were focused on the employee environment at that time, right? And I'd love to hear more. Why do you think that's important, this idea of appropriate support and resources? Well, because we're people yeah. <laughs> and we need it. Uh, you know, one thing that I've learned working at Cornell, you know, I can complain about a lot of little things at Cornell, but you'll never hear me say that it's not a great place to work. Um, it's a great place to work. 
I see a lot of people who really care, and I'm impressed by that. And, and I've been to other places, and I have not seen that. You know, working on the EA, you know, I was cynical going into any, any committee position that I'm on. I was cynical going into it, like, all right, let's hear what all this talk is going to be. Yeah. Talk, talk, talk. <laughs> uh, you know, because I want to see action. I yeah. don't want to just hear about talking. Yep. I, and I, I'm seeing that people really care. They care about the student experience. They care about, you know, what's going on with employees and staff. And, and just seeing that, it kind of motivates me. To, it makes me want to be able to make more of an impact as well. Um, and it falls in line with what I believe anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so, no, I think, I think that uh, if I'm working, I could say specifically with coaches. You know, I have 150 kids between both teams, 75 on the men team. My event group sprints and hurdles, maybe 30 between the men and the women that mm-hmm. I'm working with. If I am not doing well, if my mental health isn't in a good place, if, I, if my needs aren't met, then the kids are going to feel that. Yeah, they're going to feel that I'm not going to be able to be fully engaged, fully committed. Matter of fact, I can say that there was one point where I, I was just feeling burnt out and I was not into the coaching the team wasn't that good at the time. And I wasn't I just wasn't feeling it. I wasn't really wanting to be at practice. So to me, that's the impact, you know. And so I'm not giving the kids what I promised them. They're not going to get their goals because I'm halfway into it. They can feel that energy that I don't care, so they're not going to care. And so you can have a team that ends up last and no one's happy and everyone's kind of miserable. Staff won't be happy because they're in a position where they're not able to be successful because I'm not into it. And so I just think if you're not in a good place, the people who work with you and maybe work under you in some cases are going to are gonna feel that. And that's not fair to them. Um, the pandemic, as terrible as it was, when I came back from the pandemic, I was excited about coaching. I was excited to coach. The team has been better every year since before the pandemic. This year was the best year we've had in six years. And I realized I needed a break. I needed a break. Yeah. That's all. I just needed some time to just do other things, mm-hmm. you know, go to a concert or something, right. go to the beach yeah. and, and away from track, away from just that being my singular focus. And so now I'm there. That's where I am. I'm like, okay, there has to be balance. You know, I'm a Libra, so I already believe in balance, but right. there, there has to be balance, you know? So if we want Cornell to be the type of place where we're maximizing the student experience and the student advocate experience. We want them to feel like they belong here. We're just taking care of all of their needs and we're helping them be successful so that they can go off into the real world and take over, right? Then us, the ones who guide them, the ones who mentor them, the ones who help them and teach them and, and who are pointing them in the right direction, or the ones who are cooking for them or serving their meals or checking them into housing or whatever role or capacity that we're engaging with these, these students. I think we have to be in a good place if we're going to do our jobs well. And it kind of goes back to the point that you made earlier about finding something outside of work that fulfills you too, right? Yes. Not Like you said, this was your, your primary goal for a long time and you got burned out from that. Yes. Um, and then you had to kind of go find that other fulfillment outside of work related. Exactly. So yeah. if you ask the kids, what's Coach Durant going to do when he's off? They'll probably say he'll be on a beach because if you go to my social media, you'll see me on a beach or on a boat or something. So that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. In the winter break, I'm going to be in a Caribbean home, yeah. eating Caribbean food, you know, and, and absorbing the, the 100 degree weather and being on the beach. And I'm going to do that in the summer and times that I have breaks, you know, so I can just it away and that way when i come back to track i'm like game time let's win a championship i feel great (laughs) but i also think it really highlights the importance of why we need a workplace culture that supports that Mm -hmm. absolutely a hundred percent and that's another piece um this is how we do our staff right because coaching and recruiting is already high stress so you're already going to be on it so i i I know that i've been allowed to do things how i feel they make sense Mm -hmm. um and no one's telling me hey you have to do it this way 8 a.m to 8 p.m every day because then it's like well i'm not going to do that that's (laughs) that's just too much so i think that um we have that culture in athletics i know that in scl it is the direction that everything is going Um, i'm on the uh, advisory committee and it's been a lot of work in scl on working our on our values and priorities and um you know belonging is a piece of that you know part of feeling like i belong here is is being able to exist here without me essentially being at the end of my rope like i should have some equilibrium working here which right. I, I feel that i do um and i do think in some ways that's unique 
here. Or I see Cornell putting effort into that versus I've heard horror stories in other places, which is why I go back to saying you won't really hear me say Cornell isn't a great place to work. I, I think there's a lot of effort being done to make it a very good place to be. And just to give employees agency, it was really what you're talking about. Is yeah. I mean, that, that's the whole difference between equality and equity, right? It's recognizing that to be equitable, each person, depending on whatever their, their job is, their responsibility, but also their life, <laughs> their life circumstances, is going to need something different in terms of resources and support than the person next to them will. Can't give everybody the same thing. you got to give them what they need. You know, absolutely. I think we had that conversation before. That's kind of one of the points that I make. Having a large team where we're recruiting individuals from everywhere, we've had individuals yeah. from Jamaica. Um, I think we really have to focus on if we're going to be the place that invites everyone and everyone is welcome, then you really have to pay attention to specific needs for, for groups because those can be hard. You know, um, I've been here for a while, but now I live in Syracuse. Um, and one of the primary reasons I live there is because there's a wonderful Jamaican restaurant five minutes from where I live, and I love Caribbean food. Yeah. And so as a person from the Caribbean, you would be surprised at how good that makes me feel. Yeah. And so it may seem little to somebody else. You know, they're not thinking about that. So if we're going to invite people from everywhere, it takes effort, and we have to really see what individuals need. And while we are, as a university, working very hard to make this a place that welcomes everybody, more work has to be done there. And that's going to be a constant thing. And, and it's hard and it's expensive. But if your goals are to make this this type of place, then that's what you're signing up for. And it's those kinds of efforts that are going to lead to that retention, right? And the, the longevity of employees staying here. Because you can recruit, you know, day in, day out and get people here. But to get them to stay, it's those kinds of efforts that's going to get yeah. us there. So more jerk chicken in the dining yeah. halls. Yeah. <laughs> I say that about Indian food, too. <laughs> Seriously, you have to rotate it, mm -hmm. some, some plantain and rice yeah, and beans, that's something. That's right, that's right. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, Adrian, I'm going to ask you one last question. So you've accomplished many of your goals throughout your life, right? So you made it to the Olympics, made your head coach goal. What is next? Well, I mean, I'm still in the sport of track and field. So I'm looking for a national champion would be yeah. nice. In the, in the sprints, we've had national champions at Cornell, and, and Rudy Winkler was, a, was national champion while I was head coach. But I'd like to coach a, a national champion in the sprints from here that's big because that's when you're, you know, Texas and Florida's, they yeah. don't like that. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, at some point, it would be nice in my career to have a, uh, a world record holder, mm. uh, Olympic champion. There's still plenty to do. Oh, yeah. yes, of There's course. Still plenty Great goals. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Well, with a leader like you, Adrian, I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, you clearly are creating a culture that is going to be so critical towards getting to that goal, but also you're helping to create the next generation of adults, you know, yes. in the workforce. That's even more important. And it's fulfilling, and it's even more fulfilling. The track stuff is great, but when I get to see them graduate yeah. and these kids, the jobs that they get. Yeah. And um, I feel like sometimes we have to, the student athletes may feel, and maybe less so here than other schools, like Harvard, I'm going to say that. But <laughs> some of the student athletes, I feel, they feel that people look at them like they didn't earn it. And they don't deserve to be here. And I can tell you that's not the case. Our student athletes academically, they're the same. Yeah. There's no exception made for them. So they are excellent students. And because they're excellent students who are able to come to this very difficult school and practice upwards of 20 hours a week while maintaining over a 3.0, yeah. when they get hired, they outperform the rest right. of the student mm -hmm, body. Of yeah. I mean, they're in the workforce crushing it. And so this is why people always reaching out to us like yeah, we want some of those student athletes because they can think about it. They can deal with stress and pressure and multitasking and just and teams. Te and, they can yeah. work together with yeah. others for yeah. a common yes. goal. Yeah. People, yes. they can work together with others from different backgrounds yes. and ideologies and belief systems. And, yeah. and, and because they have a common goal. Yes. It's like the great equalizer, which I guess I never thought about sports that way before. Oh, you know? yeah. You you took the words out of my mouth. The reason that I was I was a straight A student coming up. The reason why I never got picked on is because I could beat you in a race. Mm. The reason I was able to move to New Jersey where I didn't have any friends and know anybody is because when I joined the soccer team 
everyone embraced me. So now I had friends. And now I joined the track team. Now I had even more friends. The transition to these places was a lot easier because the athleticism was respected and it just put me in a position where I could make friends and network and meet people. So for me, it's always been how I can go someplace and not be alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one last question. As Toil said, we probably would get messages about this too. You need to say before we go, where can people and how can people find your podcast? Oh, yes. Okay. I actually had some people reach out because I haven't done the podcast for a year. The episodes are on YouTube. I have maybe 34 interviews. And, you know, it's, there's some amazing people. Uh, I had a good friend, Chelsea Hammond Ross. She's an Olympic. I don't know if they've upgraded her to silver by now in the long jump. But uh, she was telling me that, you know, she was fracturing a vertebrae in her back. And the doctor told her if she jumped again, she would break her back. And being an Olympian, she jumped again. And so she was in a full body cast, maybe six months out from the Olympics and still earned a medal. And I'm like, that's just, that's unbelievable. And and I kept hearing things like that. Wallace Spearman, who was a 200-meter USA record holder, he's like, oh, I had broken bones in my foot when I was racing Usain Bolt. And I'm like, no one has a clue what these individuals are going through. Yeah. What is the title of your podcast? The Home Stretch with Adrian Durant. Oh, I love that. The Home Stretch. Very cool. Oh, well, my goodness, Adrian, this has just been such a nice conversation. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself, but also so much of your wisdom and uh, <laughs> your insights and your humor. I love yes. your humor. Yes. So thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, Twill, I so appreciated that conversation with Adrian. Like I said, I, I got to know him, you know, not personally or anything, but just through his work on employee assembly. And he was one of those people who didn't say a lot, but when he did, it was like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that is spot on. And I just knew he was somebody I wanted to know more about. And, uh, this conversation did not disappoint. <laughs> well, and you know, Aaron, that it's a it's an amazing conversation when you say, "Oh, I have last question for you," and then it's one more, and yes, then one more, exactly. and then one more. <laughs> exactly. It's like we can't just go, you know, call them up and say, "Let's go have coffee and talk more." Right? right? Like this, we act like this is the only time yeah. we can talk with them. But I guess what I liked most was just he's one of those people who really articulates so well the importance of both what you do for yourself, what you sort of set out for yourself in terms of goals and how you stay motivated regardless of what might be going on around you that would have every reason to tell you to turn around and go back, (laughs) you know, but what keeps you going forward. But then also the importance of what those around you can do to help contribute to your success. I just think he really, his, his life experiences really highlight both those things equally. Mm-hmm. And, and he can obviously shares that throughout like his journey in terms of what's available to him moving yes. to New Jersey, his, you know, the, the motivation from his mom to send him to New Jersey and actually kind of uh, further his athletic journey there and all the way to walking in mm-hmm. to South Carolina, yes. right? But, you know, the other part of that is then he kind of brings that like almost like a full circle. And now it does the similar thing for not only the athletes here mm-hmm. at Cornell, but also his direct reports and, and members right. of his team. Right. You know, I'm, I'm all about, I'm a believer, yeah, hard work is going to help you. But to be honest with you, I'm one of those people that just cannot stand when people act like that's all it takes. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstrap, put in some hard work, and there's nothing you can't do. Um, that's not really true yeah. because we happen to live in a world that's not equitable, right? So that's not always true. And and so that's why I just really appreciated, you know, the, the ways he highlighted what it took in the environment around him also to help make that journey a yeah. little bit more attainable. You know? And and that he highlighted that he wasn't successful every yes. time, right? Like yes. like you said, like he had to come up with a new goal and, mm-hmm. and come up with ways to meet that mm-hmm. goal even when he wasn't successful. Yeah. You know, he talked about uh, when he walked on to South Carolina, it's because he didn't get a scholarship. He yeah. wasn't fast enough, right? right? right. Uh, even when he decided that he wanted to be a coach, mm-hmm. he had to volunteer quite a few years before he was able to get an opportunity where he made money doing that. Yeah. So he wasn't successful every step. Exactly. And yet what I liked about his journey and what he shared with us is that that end goal was always there. He didn't give up on that goal. Right, right. 
Right, exactly. And 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 so then to hear him talk about, you know, the, the athletes that he's coaching now, again, I may have sort of an, an old school image of the coach, but, you know, I've seen, you know, movies where they always sort of depict the coach as being, you know, really, really strict and you're going to do everything I say and don't waste my time and, you know, give it you, you know, 150%. He doesn't strike me as that kind of coach. No. Like he said, you're never going to hear me yell. Right. <laughs> you're not going to hear. But but his reason for that is intriguing to me. His reason is you're here because of your own goals. Right. You know, and if you are late or you're not, you know, putting your all into it, then I'm not going to invest my time because it it must no longer be a goal for you right. <laughs> that you care about. Right? I'm not going to waste my time to get you to achieve a goal that, that you're not really committed to anymore. Yeah. And it was a very interesting way to think about that. Yeah. And I think that also applies in, in his leadership style in the work setting, too, right? Very similar mentality is that the idea isn't that you're here eight to five or that you report in at eight o'clock because that's kind of the mandate or the standard Mm -hmm. that's been set. It's like, hey, you do what you've got to do as long as you know that here are the goals that we have as a department and Mm -hmm. those goals are going to be accomplished. Mm -hmm. And he trusts that people are going to do it. That's a concept. Yeah. (laughs) You know, trust that people will do the job if they've been hired for it, right? Right. Uh, but again, that recognition that it might look a little different depending on the job you do or the, the life you live, the intersects with your work. You know, again, what you need to do to accomplish your goal might not be just like you and I. What I need to do to accomplish my goal isn't going to be the same as what you, Toil, or you, Bert, need to do to accomplish your goal. And what we need from the folks that are supporting us is going to look a little right. different. Right. And and I think, you know, that emphasizes the point that you and I've made multiple times on this podcast, right, with all of our other guests as well, that, you know, we've talked about equity and equality multiple times and not everybody needs the same thing. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that when we can create an environment where each person gets whatever they need to be successful, then as a department, we're going to be or as a unit or as a university, we're going to be much more successful at the end. And that is inclusive leadership. Right. Right? I mean, I think it's funny that he's like, I don't know if I really have a style. But actually, what that tells me is exactly what we always say, which is it shouldn't be this extra thing you think about. You know, how do I lead inclusively? Right. He's just doing it. Correct. <laughs> Without even recognizing it's a style, a particular approach or anything. It's just right. embedded in what he does. Yeah. You know, yeah. absolutely. Well, we hope everybody enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Sumbershase. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Bert!